What Mad Universe is part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Content warning. Genocide, suicide, colonialism, eugenics, bestiality, and space poetry. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Tassel's fields, covered with white vegetation, for hermaphrodites ostarian frequently when the brilliant birds make the trees all scintillation, you gaze into space and search it thoughtfully. Our home planet is richer and more vast, with more lovely skies and earth smiles star. Up there our happiness waits, faithful and chaste, in the cradle of our progenitor. Run through these flowering woods, which lesser gives. Listen to songs of inspired humanity. These lands are scented, a gentle fluid leaves voluptuousness for your sensibility. But our home planet is richer and more vast, with more lovely skies and earth smiles star. Up there our happiness waits, faithful and chaste, in the cradle of our progenitor. In the night of Rudar, our travelers explore its deaths, its will-o'-the-wisps, and its steel tribe. Or hurrying farther onto the colorless sphere, they sound the secrets of a crystalline globe. Go, the home planet is richer and more vast, with more lovely skies and earth smiles star. Up there our happiness waits, faithful and chaste, in the cradle of our progenitor. Star Psy Cassiopeia, 1854, by Charlemagne Isher de Fontenay. Hi, welcome to What Mad Universe. I'm your host, Philip, and with me as always is Adam Prosser. Hi, nice to see you. Um... Today we're talking about uh, a pretty obscure one, uh, Star, also known as Psy Cassiopeia, um, by um, uh, C.I. de Fontenay. Um, this is a, a French book from uh, uh, 1854 that um, is largely a precursor to space opera and uh, other um, sort of uses of imagined worlds, uh, specifically in, you know, planetary sci-fi. Um, it was, uh, completely unknown, uh, even in its time, uh, and, uh, it was rediscovered, um, in France in, uh, after World War II in the 40s, but it still never achieved, um, quite the level of, uh, fame it, uh, possibly deserves, possibly not, well, talk about that uh, uh, after this. Today's show is brought to you by Epos Gaming Audio. 
With a comprehensive lineup of both wired and wireless headsets, gaming amplifiers, microphones, and webcams, EPOS has everything you need to experience the power of audio. Like their H6 Pro lineup, which features two versions, an open or closed headset, the closed headset allows you to tap into exceptionally detailed audio and seals out ambient noise, while the open version delivers natural high-fidelity audio with an incredible soundstage. Both headsets include a magnetic, detachable microphone and a sleek design that has no wild RGB configurations, just good design. Listeners can save by visiting www.eposaudio.com gaming and entering code Epos friend 15 at checkout to save 15%. Hey everyone, it's David Petrangelo, one of your hosts from Remember 64, the podcast that goes on the totally tubular journey through the Nintendo 64's library. Join us as we dive into classics from Nintendo, Rare, and into the early days of polygons and 3D worlds. Yes, we're covering it all from top of the charts down to the dingy basement and everything in between. We may even find a few hidden gems. Ooh, Remember 64 only on the Tokyo Beat Network. Uh, so we're back. Uh, this time we've both read this one. Yeah, it's a fairly short book. Um, yeah. Now, what, uh, Philip, what was it that made you suggest this one? Like, where did you hear about it, or what, what did you hear about it that made it um, uh, worthwhile? Well, um, I, I I hadn't actually read this till I was uh, going to be doing this episode, but I had known of it for for years and years um, uh, through. Um, it's one of the the books available through Black Coat Press, so I, I discovered it searching through their um, library. Um, uh, they, they're the the company that puts out a bunch of you know translations of old French books and stuff. I see. Yeah. Um, they did, you know, Saturn and Ferrandel and so on. Uh, though this book uh, did have translation earlier translations um, um, in the in the seventies, I believe uh, there was an English translation put out then. The nineteen seventies, you Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Sorry. Yes, yeah, so the book is from the eighteen fifties. Right. Um, uh, but. Um, uh, yeah, th- this is the most widely available version right now. Right. In English. And I noticed, like, the version I had had illustrations that seemed like 30s or 40s era illustration. You said it became popular after World War II, I think? Yeah, or I, popular is probably the wrong word, because this has never been, uh, like, a, a hugely known book, even in France. But um, it became known after World War II, yes. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I couldn't help notice, so the significance, and a few people, you know, when you, you hear people talking about the book, uh, it it's definitely seems like the significance is that it, um, like, it, it does seem quite ahead of its time in its world building, like, there's, it, it, it does feel closer to, like, 20th century science fiction in most ways than 19th century science fiction, uh, just because of how they've built, you know, they've done the world building that's a little more complex and not necessarily scientifically accurate but certainly like they put a little more thought into it like the way that multiple suns would create different colors on the world and would you know there are all these multiple bodies orbiting each other and so forth and so forth like that so it has a bit more of a 1920s 1930s pulp feel than um you know the classic sort of swiftian 19th century we've talked about this before how like stuff from that era is usually it's usually like a political satire which this, I think this is, but it's it's 
just as concerned with like the world building and the, the, the fantasticalness of it as it is with like you know and then the country of the Gwynims and the and Gulliver's Trout, you, you know, Lilliput kind of thing, where the whole point is to make a political point or a satirical cultural point. Um, here, the, I think that's kind of downplayed in favor of just, hey, come come see this cool world I created, you know? It, would you agree with that? Or Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, and also uh, other elements like uh, um, spaceships, which had existed in fiction but weren't terribly common, actually, when you think about it in the 1850s. Right. It's always sort of, I took a balloon to the moon kind of thing. And, th- and this has a bit of a feeling of that. Like, the things they build, they're called a bear, a bars, a bears, um, which transport them. And they do talk about how, for instance, it has to be filled with oxygen to make it breathable. And But it does seem to operate on principles of, like, ballooning and zeppelins more than, you know, proper spaceships. But it's oh, hard to yeah, tell. I, I took it to be more like some sort of anti-gravity material, but that that's that's a fair assessment. Yeah. Um, uh, obviously, this, this is not hard sci-fi in any way, shape, right. or form. Um, yeah. If we if we're gonna pin hard sci-fi on like Jules Verne, that was later, obviously. So uh, and you know he literally. Oh no, Jules Verne was was around this time, I think. Eighteen fifties. I thought he was a little closer to the eighteen eighties. Or am I really wrong? Yeah. I mean, I, it, this guy this does predate Verne definitely because quite a yeah. few people have commented on that, but maybe not by that far. So maybe he was um, kind of laying the table. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people also uh, uh, pointed out uh, similarities, uh, like the spaceships, to uh, uh, the one in uh, um, First Men in the Moon by H.G. Uh, Wells. Right. And then it's uh, ovoid and metal, and uses some form of anti-gravity. Right. And, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, it, you just sort of lift off and float through the ether, which is the word they use repeatedly. Um, again, it's a translation from France. French, but uh, in fact, it's actually, I think it's worth noting, as far as I can tell, the actual French name of this is Star, or Psy Cassiopeia, uh, because like... No, no, it, it was, I believe it was just Star, like the English word Star. Right, exactly. So he he's a Frenchman using the word Star, using the English word Star as the name of his planet. So confusingly, the planet is named Star. <laughs> like, I... If they wanted to be legit, honest in the uh, like it, it, to capture that in the translation, I think they should have used the French word for star as the name of the planet, which is Etoile. Um, that might have made it a little more easy to to, to follow because otherwise they're talking about. And then they left star and went to the star. You know what I mean? <laughs> so um, yeah, I uh, you and I were actually watching the uh, Three Musketeers movies from the seventies. And uh, there's a character, of course, in the books as well, uh, Milady de Winter, and her name is the English word Milady. Right. <laughs> and um, I already knew this because I had seen some uh, stuff adaptations and stuff before. But you, you were very confused. Like, how did they know they were talking about this specific Milady? Yeah. No, that, that's her name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's funny because English people like to like for centuries, English people, really since the Norman invasion, English people like to use French words to sound fancy and French names and so forth like that. Like that, And uh, so it's to see a Frenchman using English words <laughs> to, oh, you know... Yeah, not- uh, Milady was a name that existed and it's just the English word um, um, like in France uh, and it's just because they thought it sounded exotic because it's English. Right, exactly, yeah. So it's kind of, it, you know, it's... Uh, 
I've always the one I always like is how in English we say uh, it, there were there was a, 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 a there a pub name used to be the Les Enfants en Castile, which means the children in the tower, uh, related to uh, the the Henry V, I think it was the, the kids who were put in the tower, um, and the, the common people kind of didn't understand French, so it kind of morphed into the elephant and castle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of that kind of thing happened. Anyway, so that's kind of what's happening here in reverse in uh, 1854. Anyway, um, yeah, Philip, why don't you tell us sort of about the story and what it is, or the world and what it is here. Yeah, so um, it, it starts off with um, the narrator, who's not named, but uh, exploring the, the Himalayas, climbing up the mountains, and a uh, 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 meteorite crashes, and it turns out it has inside of it um, um, paper uh, with written words on them uh, in some foreign language. Um, and uh, after years, uh, he manages to translate it somehow into English. And this is, and it's um, documents from another world. So he uses this to piece together. Um, a history of the planet, and it also, uh, the book includes full poems and plays and so forth, and um, prose, and a prose poem uh, from, like, in-universe um, documents. Yeah, it's what's sometimes called um, a jackdaw novel. Literally, a jackdaw is a thing you can get out of the, uh, uh, the, the library, and it's sort of a box of assembled materials related to a particular subject, so there might be, like, news clippings, there might be sheet music if it's musical there might be uh a book there might be books but you know of different subject of different things by different people uh you know photographs paintings all kinds of different things um and that's usually applied to novels that are kind of a collage of different things in this case it's like it's like it really does feel like someone tried to preserve the cultural and the uh you know intellectual history of star in the form of a series of different books and and pages and clippings and so there's poems and short plays and things all scattered together basically yeah and um so uh the planet presented uh star has uh four suns though one of them is a satellite of the planet uh which is confusing but it apparently lights up the night sky um and the stars are, are various colors white green red and blue it also has um, four moons, which are all populated. Um, and uh, uh, the planet itself um, has various animals on it, uh, some more fantastical than others. Uh, one I thought was interesting was the uh, um, Sorigino, uh, P-S-A-R-I-G-I-N-O, Sargino, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a uh, quadruped with close white fur, and its uh, skin um, stretches. Uh, it's only attached to the eyes, the mouth, uh, and other natural openings, and on the soles of the feet. So um, it, it like inflates, basically, its outer layer of skin <laughs> um, with uh, some sort of gas that's uh, 15 or 20 times lighter than air and it uses it to right. escape predators yeah, and yeah. then can vent it out and uh, yeah. and land again. Yeah. Which is, like, uh, apparently balloon, like, animals that are, like, balloon creatures wouldn't work physically, but it's always a fun science fiction idea. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and it, and it apparently has an, quote, aperture through which you can release the gas. <laughs> so basically it moves around by farting, as far as I can tell. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, also another one, the um, uh, Brameels, uh, bird-like plants um, that uh, are said to have the structure of a plant, but the sensitivity of, sensitivity of an animal. And um, they, they get around by uh, moving their... Uh, um, the branches on their trunks, which have leaves on them, and they can fly by virtue of that. Um, sort of uh, predicting plant animals and stuff like uh, Weinbaum's uh, Journey, you know, his Mars right. books. Um, yeah, it's pretty yeah, imaginative. Uh, As you said, like, a lot of stuff from that era was often just like, horses, but they're blue kind of thing. Yeah, and this has some of that, particularly with the birds. Like right. a, a major animal is the setos, which is a a blue bird with uh, a golden wingtips, um, and it's like extremely important to the uh, Starian people. It's like uh, um, they're emotionally attuned to a specific Starian, and um, right, they bond with them emotionally. Yeah, yeah, um, and they're just they're just a type of bird, and there's there's eagles, and there's there's creatures said to look like horses, but not quite. Right. But doesn't say how they differ. And cetaceans, which um, I'm a little unclear. They seem to be land animals, but they're called cetaceans. No, no. Uh, they're, the the telersis are cetaceans that draw boats and gondolas. Okay, it's boat. It is boats then. Because okay. yeah. later they're going through the forest. And he, sa- he says he sees cetaceans, but maybe I mis- misunderstood it. Per- I don't the, remember that. The, but... the per- it's it's that whole uh, story at the end with uh, Elia and, and uh, yeah. Abasur. Um I don't but, remember that specific moment though. Yeah, no, it's 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 very like it, the, the prose in this is very purple, which can made it a bit of a slug for me. Um, I, I very understandable. Like, um, um, and this is um, how it ends. Um, uh, I'll just read out the the last lines of the poem that that ends it. Uh, But I say that uh, in this way it's good to stagger. Under a great subject I bow almost crushed. But what does that matter? If I've done badly, I've attempted much. Yeah, I do (laughs) He admits that that, like maybe he didn't achieve his goals, but uh, he he was really trying something here. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's, in many ways it's sort of the, the first of its kind for something the first of its kind for something, which is kind of interesting, or like it's it's ahead of its time anyway. Maybe not the first, but it's definitely like uh, old in that regard. Um, I'll just mention for now, like the most important thing about it, uh, and the story aspect that takes up most of the book, although not the entire thing. Uh, this kind of ends about the two third point, uh, but it's the sort of history of Star, which is portrayed as this sort of Edenic society of you know peace and harmony. Uh, with people, and they're described as humans, although there's a lot of evidence that they don't really look like humans, but um, they're certainly humanoid. Um, they live on this planet, they pursue, you know, arts and literature, and, uh, you know, the different, uh, the different countries are sort of devoted to different political persuasions, but they're all, like, they, 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 they live in harmony and they pursue different ideologies and ideas, like types of art and so on. Um, and um, But then they're hit by something about, I think, 800 years before uh, the, the events of, that are being described in the book later on. Um, 
they're hit by something called the slow plague, which uh, takes like ten years to kill you, and uh, it towards the end you st- it starts giving you like euphoria and making you feel pleasure. So it's 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 and this is like you're dying and you're like wasting away, but you're feeling it, you know, rapture and it's it's very. It messes people up, obviously, psychologically, just as much as, you know, as it kills people. Um, and out of this, a guy emerges named uh, Fart, and it, it hits a lot of the population, and uh, even though some of them are presumably immune, a guy emerges named Farnozes, and he believes, basically, that, you know, humanity's going to suffer and die in its entirety. There's no... Not much talk of, of a cure, interestingly, Um they just sort of seem to think that it's going to wipe them all out, or he does. Whether it's actually going to or not is is unclear. Probably not. But basically, people get so uh, uh, psychologically damaged that they start pursuing the idea of this uh, this this basically cult member leader who starts telling everyone that they have to commit suicide before the plague can get them. And furthermore, they have to wipe everyone out who isn't willing to join the cult and commit suicide. So basically, they go on this sort of genocidal tear for their own their own race, uh, and they almost, they wipe almost everyone out except this one small group of like particularly enlightened uh, people. Now, what what were they called again? This uh, the, the the enlightened ones. Oh uh, yeah, there's there's um, uh, a group uh, of immortals that live among the society that have uh, are nine feet tall and have blue hair um, and green eyes. And they're called the uh, uh, the uh, uh, nemes- nemesides or longevity uh, longevites longevities. Yeah. Long- I don't know. Yeah, longevities. I would say longevites because it's French, of course. Right? Oh yeah, so, fair. Uh, yeah, which just means like long lived people. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so they're like they're they were sort of pursuing these higher pursuits of I, I it's they they sort of spontaneously appeared one day, and they were sort of teachers and, and you know, uh, archivists of everything of the civilization. Uh, when they see what's happening, they build spaceships, abares, and uh, they uh, they fly off to another, they manage to escape to another planet. Um, the Farnosas... Or one of the moons. One of the moons, sorry, yeah. I get, these technically aren't planets, I suppose, but uh, it's, it's the little prince, you know, where they're like, it's a small planet, but you can just go and hang out there and live. That doesn't affect the atmosphere or or even the gravity, apparently. Um, Because, again, that was maybe a little before the common understanding of how that would work. Um, But they leave behind... So, And and this Edenic civilization had another species called the Replius. Replius. um, And they're left behind. They aren't forced to commit suicide. They're they're basically allowed to to leave themselves um, behind. So they end up inheriting the planet. Uh, Uh, Yeah, and... This yes. aspect is the far, by far, most uncomfortable part of this book. It's <laughs> yes, a it uh, slave species yeah. um, that are um, they can speak, but they're obviously of lower intelligence than Starians, and they're just described in the most unflattering ways possible at all times. Yeah, they're 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 described as having long ears near the end, but and uh, but they're covered in hair. They're presumably kind of ape-like. Um, and, uh, and they're yeah, short and, yeah, yeah like, hunched. Yeah. And you can have, you, the Replius and the Starians can interbreed, but they're, uh, they're, 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 uh, mixed, the, the, the half-breeds are, or Cetracites, as they're known. Uh, they're, um, 
they're sterile and they're uh, they're basically just smarter versions of the replicas. Um, and I kept waiting for the turn on this of like, okay, now what happens? Like that they've come to power. It's going to be about how you know oh, they were underestimated this whole time. And no, I was just bringing a uh, 21st century mindset to it. It is very much about how the replicas are just naturally inferior by dint of their blood. And when they control the uh, when they control the uh, the world, it all goes to pot. They invent war and dictatorships. Uh, they're all you know idiots, and they don't manage their resources well. Uh, there's tyranny. It's all just a nightmare in society. And eventually, when the Starians uh, return, they just kind of like they don't necessarily kill, but they discipline the leadership with the lash. And get put them back in their place, and everything's great again when the Starians come back, basically, because the Starians are the superior race. And it's uh, there's really no way to read this. Like if you met this as some kind of metaphor that wasn't racial, it does not come off that way because it really yeah. just yeah, it's it's just blatantly seems like uh, Eurocentric racism. There's there's no way around it essentially. Yeah, the the only. Uh, it, thin excuse I could give is that the Replus act like humans. Like like they're they're at our level and the right. Starians are just above us. Yeah, I, I almost thought that's what he was doing of like, well to see the Starians are a superior species and look at what happens to the Replus. They're exactly like humans on Earth. And look at what happens. I, I think that a little context historical context here would be significant. Uh, you know, I tried to find out more about uh, DeFontenay uh, he was actually apparently a bit of a scientist. Uh, he was known as the father of plastic surgery, apparently. Um, and he worked for he worked under some other uh, artists, including E.T.A. Hoffman. Apparently, he was uh, at the very least heavily inspired by him. I think they corresponded. They may have had a closer relationship. I'm not clear. Um, so he was a romanticist. Yeah. yeah so he also knew uh, Theophile Gautier, who wrote. Um uh, one of my favorite vampire stories, uh, La Morte Amoureuse, which features uh, Claremont. Oh, yeah, which Claremont. I, I've used in my comic. Right, yeah, Claremont, yeah. Yeah, he was a, he was of the Romantic era, although this book was written a little after what's commonly assigned as the Romantic era. It's kind of getting into the um, the mid-19th uh, mid century, which is, well, Romantic's usually a little more towards the early uh, 19th century, uh, but it does have... Um, like it, it's got that sort of uh, admiration of nature and admiration of um, you know the glories of, of and certainly uh, art and, and science and discovery and how the the life of the mind and intellectual and also sort of a longing for an imagined past and you can start to see how those ideas fed into a lot of bad stuff because it's got that sort of well there was a great thing in the past and everyone came along and and ruined it with modern society, which coincidentally, in this case, is run by the quote lesser race that uh, took over. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah, you start to see how this this sort of fed into very very bad stuff in the 20th century. Even though romanticism, as in and of itself, is a much more complicated and generally more uh, less more benign uh, philosophy, and it, it had people like uh, uh, Shelley and Byron. Uh, who were romanticists, and they were, you know, they were maybe defensively, you know, pushing back against the encroachment of modernity and and uh, oppressive, well, capitalism, really, and, and uh, industrialization and stuff that they thought was harming human culture, and they had 
So they certainly had a lot of points, Frankenstein and all that. But here it's turning into sort of like, we should go, you know, make France great again, make Star great <laughs> again, is kind of the attitude here. Um, I, I did want to say uh, uh, something about the history. I don't know if you want to add anything before I go into the history stuff here. Um, oh, um, not not to this. I, I I agree. There's there's this aspect of it is uh, not defensible in any real way, um, and it really mars some otherwise really interesting stuff. Yeah. What I would so here's the thing. Um, the historical context here, I think, is important. Like. France spent most of the 19th, like Europe in general, but France especially, spent most of the 19th century undergoing these series of revolutions in the sense of like, you know, new governments, new, and, and not just like a new king, but like create an entire new ideology would emerge and be in power for a decade and then something else would happen. So, I mean, like you have the French Revolution, of course, where, you know, this pretty radical egalitarian uh, society sprung up for a while. Uh, you know, the really radical uh, left-wing society was eventually put down and led to more uh, a more conservative but still Republican in the sense that they didn't want a king. They wanted a democracy. Uh, they were in charge for a while, um, and then they were overthrown by Napoleon, who maintained... That's a, that's a huge discussion, but he maintained some of the ideals of the revolution but he did want to make himself emperor of Europe, basically. He was mostly militaristic and wanting to conquer for his own sake. Um, and uh, then, of course, he took a while to be put down. And then when he was finally put down, the kings of Europe set up a new uh, dynasty in France. So they went back to having a monarchy. A lot of people don't realize this. They sort of think that I, I was, I'm guilty of this. I actually thought the revolution put an end to monarchy in France. The monarchy came back, and then there was another revolution that put another... That, almost overthrew the king, and then another king was in charge. Then finally that king was put down, and they became a republic again, but Napoleon's nephew, Napoleon III, of course, uh, took a, uh, he, he, he ran for office, was elected, and immediately set, himself, set about making himself a dictator. Then he was overthrown. Then there was the Paris Commune, although that was after this book was written. And then finally after that, Paris became, uh, France became a, a genuine republic. Uh, but it took almost 100 years from the original uh, thing. So Given that context, looking at this story, it's kind of about how, oh, there was a natural state of things, and it was overthrown through chaos and despair, and then these lesser people rose up and took control. So, I mean, like, being generous, you can see it as more like, it's still not great, but it's con condemnation of the common people and the republic and the, and the, and the revolution uh, versus, you know, the monarchy, the monarchical leadership. The nobility. But at, yeah. at the same time, they they don't have kings. The Starians don't have kings, and the Replus uh, introduce that aspect. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is why it's not a straight one-to-one -one political metaphor. So I think by the time uh, De Fontenay was writing, it was like the French ideology of like not republicanism and Enlightenment era science and stuff had really been brought. Like they were really on the vanguard of that stuff because that's that's one thing that came out of the revolution is that France was considered a very enlightened modern country compared to everything else. And um, so I think they were, you know, even the even the sort of retrograde people tended to, to embrace that. But you've got this sort of subliminal, not not even subliminal, but slightly repressed sort of longing for. Well, it was much better when. Like, and it's not even that he's like, oh, monarchy's a better way to rule. It's just like, oh, back then when the king was in charge, we had the, 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 the 
the intellectual uh, intelligentsia and the, the artistic class who could uh, think about, uh, ponder the great intellectual pursuits and artistic pursuits. And wasn't that better before we had all these revolutions and war and blood and, and caused by these, you know, upstarts trying to take over? You know, like, that's kind of the, well, even, even if it wasn't intentional, that's kind of the subtext of what's coming out of this story, basically. Um, that, that's always a problem with um, people who kind of look to the past. It's often like, oh, oh, they had great art and they pursued great intellectual pursuits. And yeah, they were, a certain class was free to do that. <laughs> but then there was a, you know, there were a lot of people who weren't and that's what led to the revolutions. And it's kind of a longing for, oh, when everything was stable and us artists could just concentrate on our artwork without worrying about, uh, you know, a war breaking out the next day. And, but, but like, why were the wars breaking out? That's the question. And that's very much, that colors this whole narrative. It's very much about, oh, like, of course, war is bad, and it's great to have a, a peaceful world where you can study art and, and science, but, like, what is that reflecting in terms of real-world history? That's, that's I think, interesting and a, an important thing to consider when you're reading this book. That's my take on it, anyway. At the same time, when they reestablish uh, um, on, back on Star, uh, one of the three sacred laws is the ownership of land will be limited. Yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, no, no landlords or things like right. that. So, yeah, it's it's sort of politically all over the place. In, yeah, in it's, that 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 does actually sign, uh, align with some of the goals of the revolution, even the more conservative aspects of the revolution. Like, it does seem like he he's not a monarchist, but he's maybe a more bourgeois conservative revolutionary, which is a thing that did, as I said, after the initial um, uh, Danton and uh, and uh, Robespierre. Uh, aspect of the revolution was thrown down there was a bit there was the directorate i believe i, I i'm not up on, entirely on my uh, uh, revolutionary history there but uh, i believe that there was a what was considered a more conservative uh, group and and you know it was very much as, as socialists later said it was a bourgeois uh, revolution it was it was the merchants and the and the capitalists who revolted and they were the good guys they overthrew the monarchy but they still had you know an idea of uh, of, uh, of like early capitalism, which was often about like, oh yeah, of course we're not going to go out of control with greed and owning everything and become like our kings unto ourselves, because it was the philosophy of liberation at that time. I think that's what you're seeing being reflected there in that there, it was sort of well, we got to limit. You know, Adam Smith writes about this in the Wealth of Nations, like, well, the merchants have to be sober and use their powers wisely, and you know, I think that's kind of being reflected in this as well. That's my again, that's my take on. Yeah, I mean it's it's hard because this is such a fantastical book. Like it doesn't really correspond with history in a lot of ways, and we don't know much about the author, so it is hard to just read stuff into you know. Yeah, like it's... how much is like intentional political commentary, and how much is just sort of him reflecting ideas of the time. Yeah, I yeah exactly. I I, I mean it's uh, I'm not saying it's like a strong political commentary it's just that i think these are the ideas that are informing it when he writes about it and again i like i see it as the attitude that you you do see in a lot of science fiction what it's become more and more prevalent i think right up to today where the writers are like well i want to consider these uh fanciful some of the most uh reactionary writers even today are people who have like very strong ideas and are very thoughtful about some like highfalutin disconnected ideas and they they often 
tilt towards the right because they feel like, well, I don't want to inject, inject politics into it. I just want to talk about, uh, you know, what if there was a world where this was true and that, and so, and like, high, high-minded cultural and, and uh, world-building type stuff. Um, but I mean, you can't get away from politics, as we all know. Yeah. Um, so that's that's like that that again that is that's how I would interpret this. If somebody can show me that, like, no, De Fontenay was a completely different guy and so forth. But I know he was a, like he was a scientist or a doctor at least. Uh, so he kind of I, I again I feel like what you're seeing is the longing for a time when you could he could pursue his intellectual pursuits and not have like things chaotically happening around him all the time, which is understandable. Like that, I, I totally get it. You don't want your country to fall into a revolution every 10 years. Like it's, it's a little bit, uh, it, it's, 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 uh, it's gotta be stressful, especially if you're, if you're interested in something that isn't political, if you're interested in science or, or art or whatever, but, uh, that is definitely the, the mindset of this book. Oh, uh, one thing before we get into, uh, more world building stuff. Well, I guess this is world. Um, one of the, uh, uh nations, um, that that sort of founded Starian society is the um, uh, uh, Savelsees from the city of Savile, um, and I, I liked their um, the the or the um, uh, creation myth here. I thought it was interesting. Uh, originally, the only uh, beings in existence were the god Panath- Panather and um, a worm-like entity called Oxier, and uh, Panather is just extremely horny and has sex with this worm um and it produces a beetle and then he sees that the beetle is like better than the worm so he has sex with the beetle and that produces a bat and then he has sex with the bat and that produces uh the first men and women um and uh he has sex with the the woman but all the offspring are are of the god and the woman are sterile um and they become uh demigods but the race of humanity uh, outpaces them. It's making me think of the kids of the hall thing. Real geeky stuff like a pig and a bat. Um, <laughs> no, it's... Uh, but yeah, yeah. Like, it's, go on, sir. Yeah, it, it is an interesting creation myth that it, it sort of evokes like the horniness of Greek gods and stuff, but it's its own level of sort of <laughs> perversion, I guess. Well, yeah, that, that is what a lot of real ancient myths in different societies are. Like, they're they're really weird, and they're about, you know, like, uh, you know, they're all just everything having sex with each other and producing things in a completely non-scientific, non-rational way, which is you know, yeah, fair enough, because I mean, we're talking about the gods, but, uh, you know. Wasn't, yeah. uh, uh, it was Egyptian mythology, like something was created just by a god ejaculating. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, it's that kind of thing. And then, uh, you know, Athena bursting out of Zeus's forehead and that kind yeah. of thing. Like, it, it, there's all, like, real, the gods, especially the early creation myths, get very weird in this way, and he's, he's really captured that there, I think, so that was pretty And cool. also that the, the society built up cults around bats and beetles. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, which was eventually torn down in favor, like, and all the, the uh, a new god, and it created, like, a theoc- theocracy situation, and this was actually the first war on war on star but eventually it calmed down on its own yeah yeah the, the starians i said they had this adenic situation but they did have a an early evolution but he, he you know he paints it as a bit more high-minded and sophisticated and oh they can eventually settle their differences and have peace and you know it's yeah. building towards something whereas the replias when they take over they just fight and 
look, they can't think beyond tomorrow and it leads to chaos. That kind of thing. It's the bad kind of war versus the kind of war that, I guess, leads to the evolution of society and remains comfortably in the past, so we don't have to think too much about it. Um, but, um... Yeah, so uh, after they, they leave Star uh, for, for hundreds of years, um, they uh, first uh, establish themselves on one of the moons, uh, Tassel, which is populated by uh, the uh, Tassulians, who are genderless beings who reproduce asexually, uh, which I thought was interesting. They, they look like humans, but they um, uh, just have one sex and they don't... Um, well, they don't have uh, like romantic bonding or anything, and don't really understand the concept. Yeah, he can't, that, like the book uses the English translation uses the words "humans" to describe the sentient races of every world. I don't know if that's. I, th- I feel like that's a translation glitch, and it's not necessarily that we're supposed to assume they are exactly like humans. Uh, like a, le, le, uh, like a, it, it could. It, they're not described as very human in both. I mean, of course, they seem to be humanoid. But again, it's. I, I feel like if you were to do a, an adaptation of this, you wouldn't have to do them as looking exactly like human. They could look, you know, weird. We've already talked about, you know, nine feet tall and blue hair, and these guys are hermaphrodites. I think he, there's a lot of leeway in terms of how alien the, you can picture these, because he, he doesn't describe them that in depth either, other than... Yeah. Uh, hu- human might just be like... Uh possessing of human intelligence because like in um in the john carter books they described the the tharks as human occasionally like they're part of human life right and they're you know 15 feet tall green four-armed creatures yeah i i mean note that in um he keeps describing each planet or moon that they land on as earth like and he'll even say their earth and again that's a translation thing because like they probably use the word mold which means just means world in French, but they, you know, the English translator turns it into Earth. Um, it's it's weird to talk about other planets as Earths. Uh, you know what I mean? So, uh, like, that's the kind of thing where you you have to wonder what's being filtered through the translation. Yeah. Um, so eventually, they they uh, overpopulate this world because it's just a small moon. Um, so that's actually possible to do. Um, and so they they move to the uh, to the uh, another moon, uh, Lesur, which is a world of uh, fragrance, fragrances, and it's really, you know, the flowers produce. Uh, uh, I got a sort of psychedelic vibe off of it sometimes. Like, yeah, <laughs> maybe it's like a drug planet. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, it's yeah, that's kind of how it feels <laughs> in general, without being explicitly that. You know, yeah, that it makes vibe. you happy just smelling the flowers constantly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that may be a reference to uh, the Lotus Eaters, although it doesn't affect them the same way it does in the Odyssey. But, uh, you know, it's certainly, uh, it's very hippie world, you know. Everything's yeah. beautiful. He's very obsessed with beauty, which, I mean, it, finding out that he apparently was a pioneer of plastic surgery <laughs> makes a certain, uh, reflects that in certain ways as well. Um, just he's very obsessed with how beautiful and how that reflects your inner persona as well to a certain extent. Uh, um, not always. The the Rudarians are any anyway. We'll we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, and these people uh, have uh, um, communicate through uh, song and um, like they have discourses with mul- many people that are uh, um, 
tight harmonies that just they improvise all the time, which is sort of a cool idea. Yeah, yeah, because they're t- they're they're mildly telepathic with each other, basically. I think is the idea so they can kind of sing in sync with each other. Um. Yeah. Uh. Then they land on uh, Rudar, which is the uh, moon of uh. It's like engulfed in darkness, um, and everything's sort of brownish gray sludge, like color wise. Uh, the people are, um, uh, sorry, I didn't write down the description of them, but they have like scales on their head instead of hair. Right. Uh, scales that sort of vibrate when they, when they talk and breathe. And I think he mentions um, them being gray skinned as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they are definitely ugly, but they're described as, you know, good people. Right. Um, and they live in a world where, uh, these invisible wraiths just sort of suck the life force out of everything. Yeah. Um. Uh, so they they're constantly on edge from you know death above. Yeah, um, and they reproduce quickly, but uh, that's just be, you know it yeah. just sort of keeps their their population uh, stable. Yeah, and and it's interesting that that's never dealt with. Like you you there's a sort of assumption that oh the Starians are going to come and solve everyone's problems, but they don't really solve that like at the radarians yeah they're not they... able to to get rid of the uh, the animals that are plaguing them and when the um um rudians try to leave um their their moon uh they they die they they require the mists of the of the moon in order to yeah. live themselves right which is an un- early understanding of like well you have to have the right atmosphere to breathe basically so yeah but the starians can survive on that on there so yeah, I... yeah, yeah. yeah. more I mean, the, the the right general idea, anyway. But uh, yeah, and then the the other moon is uh, Elier, uh, which is a diaphan diaphan. I have trouble with that word. Diaphanous world. Um, it's um, sort of a crystalline structure. So it has it has mass and everything, but it's basically invisible except for the way you know light refracts through it. Yeah. Yeah. And even the people there are, and animals are uh, similarly um, invisible. They they can they've sort of trained, except for their eyes, which are like ours. Like their eyes are just sort of seen in the sockets. Yeah, and I mean uh, they can apparently see each other, but also see through everything all the way down to the core of the planet. If I've got this correct. Yeah, uh, to the other side of the planet, like yeah, they yeah. can they can like there's no privacy there. Yeah, exactly. And so they're. They're good because they have no privacy. Everybody's always watching everybody else. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is uh, an interesting concept. Again, that's a, so, you know, there's a thought of, of how is this, you know, how is the physical circumstances of the world going to affect, you know, the the the, the, the thinking, the psychology of its inhabitants, which is kind of kind of I always like that kind of thing. Um, yeah. It's it's also interesting, and again, like. You, as you say, the Starians keep moving from like it, after having been, you know, rejected from Star, they go to these different moons one by one, and they keep populating. And again, there's not like in this case, they're more like the inhabitants are always seen as in a more positive light. Uh, they tend to get along with each other, um, but there's still the sort of well, the Starians are just going to show up and populate your planet. Sorry, like you know what? I mean? It's 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 again benign colonialism. Right, like it's there's no yeah, but at the same time they it. are refugees from right, they're from a world that's yeah that they can't go back to for but, for hundreds of years. But it's a European and they do go back. Yeah, but it's a European attitude of like, 
because again, it's like, well, we're just going to show up and we're just going to take over your planet, by the way. So, like, again, in a benign way, they don't do it through, like, because they're non-warlike, they're very peaceful, they never fight, and it's just everyone gets along, basically, but it's still kind of like... Yeah, I, 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 I get that interpretation, but at the same time, they are literally refugees, like, yeah. it is like, you know, like, coming from a war-torn country, you know, it's, they're not invaders, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, yeah, again, as, as always, you can, like, I'm talking more of a sort of a sub, of a, the unexamined subtext in some ways than I am the, the thing. But you're right, like, because I don't think the idea of... I mean, well, let's be clear, there had been times, there had been times and places at that point where Europeans had been forced to eject themselves from a place they had colonized. Uh, like, for instance, Haiti, uh, the Haitian Revolution yeah. had happened at that point. And I mean, to a certain degree, um, South Amer- Latin America had... Uh, you know, like it thrown off the, the, the Spanish Empire. So it's like that was a concept they knew about. And again, I'm so, starting to keep harping on this, but it is like they, you know, Deforte. We we always talk about well, oh, science fiction shouldn't be political, and it is just hilarious how 19th century science fiction is just incredibly political. Like it, it literally, even if it's not political, it's about describing the political systems of the and the cultures of the of the places they go to, the, the fanciful places they make up. So it's like it, it invites this kind of discussion all the time, right? You, you don't mm-hmm. get this sort of benign, oh, there's, maybe we don't talk about the politics aspect until the 20th century, really. In the, in the 19th century, every science fiction writer felt they had to weigh in on the, the politics and the culture and the ideas of the worlds they were creating, essentially. I, w- I would say, more or less. Wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, in space, yes. opera, at least. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That's my take on it. So... Yeah, it's but yeah, it, it is definitely like you know, uh, that that aspect of yeah, like you're right. They're they are refugees, but they're they're also sort of painted as like like because they come in spaceships and the natives don't have spaceships, right? Like it's it's they're they're clearly the quote superior uh, species, as it were, uh, at least technologically. So you know, it, it, that's how you're gonna your mind is gonna track it onto that. So uh, anyway, that's again. This is all my take on it. It's because De Fontenay was a bit of an enigma. <laughs> we don't have a lot of information on it. On him. Yeah, I mean, so. uh, we have some on like some major events that happened to him. Like his wife died the year that this book was published, um, and he himself died at thirty-seven. Oh wow! Um, so it didn't seem like he had a very like he was sick. He, he had cancer, I believe. Um, it didn't sound like he had a very happy life. Yeah, huh, um, and and it the 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 actual ending. Uh, I read that poem, but there there's one line afterwards that um, he says, "May these stories drawn from another world uh, have made you forget for a moment the miseries of this one." Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was so, definitely there's that that is something to say about this. There's a lot of longing for a better world. In as well, like there's no denying it. Of like, you know, this may be a better planet than ours. Kind of, it's definitely the subtext of a lot of it too. Right? Um, yeah, and it, so I mean, there, I, I feel like, um, and there, there's no solid evidence of this, but that star is like something he came up with as a child, and this is him sort of um, um, expanding on it um, as as an adult. Yeah, maybe could be. Um, yeah, that that. As we were saying with, um, what was it, uh, 
uh, the Wormoroboros had that yeah. aspect as well. Uh, it could be. Um, I mean, Jared Tolkien uh, essentially said something similar, or uh, sorry, not Jared Tolkien. Uh, well, him too, but uh, C.S. Lewis uh, has had always said that a lot of the Narnia books came out of literally stuff he invented as a kid that he kind of developed into a more adult framework. So it, it's a thing that happened. By the way, I noticed um, a lot of the names were very Tolkienian. Um, so I, I actually wonder if, uh, like, including a character named Fionnar, which is, uh, Fia, if you know the Silmarillion, there's a major character named Fionnar, uh, spelled slightly differently. Yeah, I almost have to wonder if uh, Tolkien somehow read this book. I don't know. I uh, doubt it. <laughs> it's pretty obscure. Did he know French? I mean, even then, Well, he was a linguist. I mean, he definitely read... No, he, well, he definitely knew French, um, because, okay. like, Elvish, yeah, yeah. Cinderin is somewhat based on French, to a certain extent. Um, and he read science fiction, and he was... You know, he wasn't big on <laughs> talking about how much he liked science fiction. He was kind of disdainful of it as an idea, Lewis and, and Tolkien. Though uh, so he liked uh, uh, Voyage to Arcturus by, um, <laughs> I forget the author off the top of my head, but um, uh, he quite liked that one. And that uh, is also a world with multiple suns uh, yeah, yeah. He, he uh, was... that produce uh, unique colors. Um, yeah. Yeah, he definitely read science fiction. Like He knew... Because he, because he would often criticize it, but he he knew it anyway. I I it, it, there's a sense maybe there it it may it's, it may just be a coincidence, but it has some Tolkienian uh, language in it, which I thought. Was, and again, it might just be because Cinderin was somewhat based on French, so maybe that's all that all that it is. But uh, yeah, yeah. And I noticed, um, and I don't seem to be the only one. I've, I see this like it's on the Wikipedia page that it. Uh, uh, some see it as, as a predecessor to stuff like uh, Olaf Stapledon's, uh, right. particularly uh, Last and First Men, sort of the overarching history of a, a fictional um, race. Right. Though that's Earth in the future, but still, it's it's a similar sort of outside view of, of a, a culture from over a long period of time. Yeah, it's it's uh, unlike Last and First Men, we do get more protagonists in this. Like, it's sort of here's a history, and here's a little short. Again, he, he includes the plays and poems of Star, so you get like these little mini plays about characters living their lives, and to get a you know a capture of day in the uh, you know a day in the life of Star kind of thing. Um, so there is some and, of that uh, racist plays about how uh, inferior their their servant yeah, class is. Same thing, yeah, again. <laughs> Um, but their birds are great. Their birds are their best friends who will help them out in every situation. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, there's a, there's a real, um, uh, so like, yeah, you'll meet a character for a bit and like get a sense. So it's kind of like, essentially we'll zoom in for a short time on a character or, or something. And of course, at various points in history where you get like, uh, the, uh, the and those kind of people, like as main characters and they, they lead the exodus and so forth. Um, so, you know, it's, but yeah, it's, it's, it's all, it's Stapledonian in the sense that it's this spanning history rather than a single narrative, so. One more thing, um, we, we get all this from, um, uh, apparently a volcano blew up that had documents in it, and that's what sent it to Earth, um, but we have no idea of the time frame, um, so this could have been, like, millions of years ago, or even right. longer. yeah. Yeah, so it's, it, it's an interesting sort of wistful uh, thing if you think about it in that sense. Right. And and Cy Cassiopeia is a real star, by the way. 
Um, yeah. So it's it is like you know, but at I think even in 1854, they were aware of just how far away something would be. <laughs> so, yeah, you can definitely argue this could be a vanished civilization that we're reading about. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Camille Flammarion, was, uh, who was uh, a astronomer and novelist, um, uh, he actually did write one of the contemp- one of the few contemporary reviews of this. Uh, said it was uh, an interesting uh, look, an imaginative look at... Um, like a, a multiple uh, star system and so on, but it obviously was not written by an astronomer. Right, right. Again, that's that seemed to have been a thing in France at the time of like the the scientists got to have a big say in fiction because Verne was very obsessed with being yeah. supposedly scientifically accurate, even though his stuff. But you know, for the time, Neil deGrasse Tyson over here. Yeah. <laughs> Well, he, I mean, he criticized H.G. Wells, literally, saying, oh, you, yeah. you needed to create Cavorite, and that doesn't exist. And it's like, yeah, so it's that show kind of me thing. this Cavorite. Yeah. Show. Again, this is this is France at that period was, like, very, uh, like, the, the leading edge of the Enlightenment. So there was real, like, science had really uh, dug in at, around that time, uh, around France. So uh, the culture was seen as very advanced. There's a, there's a reason why France stands in for sophisticated, even to this day sometimes. Uh, because the 19th century France was sort of the, the cutting edge of, of science and culture, and even though you know the, the other countries had more hard power, <laughs> France was the one they looked to for advancement for a while. So. Well, the four suns are setting, so that's it for this episode of What Mad Universe. We've been enslaved humanoid animal Philip Rice and his blue-haired immortal master Adam Prosser. Our producer was the diaphanous Alex Ross, and our theme music was by trained songbird Jack Fierick. Reminder that we both have Patreons, which help pay for hosting costs and whatnot. So subscribe to either of us, and you get to uh, uh, listen to early episodes of this podcast, uh, as well as uh, getting bonus material, cut footage, illustrations, comics, among other things. Just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, 1L, or Adam Prosser, 2S's, or what-mad-universe.pinecast.co for the links. You can also follow us on Twitter, uh, and it is Twitter, at uh, WMU Podcast, or Spear Halfhawk A for me, or uh, Prankster36 uh, for Adam. And we're also on Blue Sky with our own, uh, what is it, also well, WMU we are Podcast? What mad, we're whatmadduniverse.bsky.social and Prankster36 at bsky.social and I guess you're spear half dot these guy dot So same yeah. thing essentially. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so until next time, keep twinkling, little stars.